You're listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast, a product of the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association. To learn more, visit our website at or.nhsbca.org. Welcome to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. I'm Derek Doolin, OBC Vice President and Boys Basketball Coach at West Albany High School. Today, I'm joined by Eric Knox, Girls Basketball Coach at Benson High School. Coach, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing, Coach? I'm doing well, thank you. You know, uh, all things considered, uh, safe and healthy, and so uh, missing hoops, missing hoops. I, but uh, I, I hear you, man. It's been months. Yeah. Since I've stepped in a gym, I'm holed up in my basement, working from home, managing a. <laughs> yeah. Like, like everyone hopefully, else. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully things are are looking up here soon. Yeah. Uh, Coach, I want to start by uh, giving you a chance to introduce yourself uh, to our audience. Can you tell us a little bit about you, uh, your basketball journey, and, and how you ended up as a girls basketball coach at Benson High School? Yeah, I'm, I'm from Inglewood, South Central L.A. Um, I am a child of that city, and uh, that's where my upbringing and roots are. I, you know, played at a at that time, a historic basketball program called St. Bernard's High School and played at El Rey just outside the city. And um, from there, I got a basketball scholarship to Oregon State to play with the Orange Express, Ralph Miller. Uh, I played my first year with A.C. Green, but most of my time was spent with Gary Payton, the glove, and uh, I played between 1985 in 1989, and then I went on to coach at the 1A level um, up here in Portland, a school called Bible, uh, Temple Christian, uh, for about five years. And then I went on, became the boys' head varsity coach at Madison High School for four years. And then I went into ministry, seminary, started a church, did a bunch of nonprofit work. And about 13 years later, I jumped back into the game, but I jumped in at the, on the girls' side. Accidentally jumped in. I mean, I love working with girls, but it caught me by surprise, and it wasn't something I was looking for. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I fell in did, it fell into me, and I've, I've fallen in love with it ever since. So I've been with Benson, you know, for the last eight years, and uh, it's been quite, quite the ride. Yeah, Coach, you know, Ralph Miller, obviously a, an Oregon legend and his success at Oregon State. Do you have a favorite Ralph Miller story you don't mind sharing? Um, you know, you know, uh, you know, times have changed. The, the, uh, you know, like Ralph Miller was a avid smoker. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen him not have a cigarette in his hand or in his mouth. So it's not one big story, but I just remember I was just talking to one of my teammates, uh, Earl Martin, and we were laughing because we were running some stairs at Mount Tabor a few days ago, and we were just laughing about how we would come into our chalk talks before the, before we ran out on Gill Coliseum, and we'd come into the chalk talk with a cloud of smoke, and <laughs> and we would sit there, have to sit there for thirty minutes in a cloud of smoke as he breaks down the game plan. And we go, we take the floor and warm. So I remember, uh, 
we'd be playing UCLA and Derek Martin was like, damn, dude, you, you smell like cigarettes. <laughs> I was like, man, it's a long story. So, you know, those are the things that, that yeah. you know, you can get away with the 80s uh, that Ralph did that you can never get away with now. But, you know, that's what made Ralph Ralph, you know. Totally. That's awesome. Uh, you know, you coach, you talked about you started on, on the boys' side, uh, you took a break, uh, and then came back on the girls' side. Um, yeah. I, I guess my question is, how did how did coaching change maybe from when you hung it up uh, to when you jumped back in eight years ago? You know, I was in L.A., and I was, uh, in, I was in the mortgage business, and I was pastoring a church, and the the market collapsed. My business collapsed, and the church was a very small church, so it, financially for me, it just wasn't feasible for me to pastor. And I was, you know, I was upside down on my house. I ended up with a ton of debt and trying to figure out a, sort of like this career crisis, like what do I do now? Uh, I'm staring down bankruptcy, <laughs> literally. And so I called my pastor friend up in Portland, who I hadn't talked to in a long time, and I just asked him, I said, man, could you could you pray for me? Because I'm going through a real rough patch in my life. Uh, financially, I'm upside down. You know, creditors are knocking on my door. And he said, man, would you move back to Portland and come work at this church? I was like, yeah, my part, my wife wasn't fond of Portland. It's not diverse mm-hmm. enough for her. Going to mm-hmm. her and asking her if she was open to move back to Portland would have been a miracle. I told the pastor, I said, well, I'd be fine with it, but I don't know if my wife would be. But I said, let me check with her and I'll get back to you. And I went and met with her and she was strangely open to the ideal. And uh, four months later, we packed our bags. We short sold our house. We negotiated our debt. And uh, I I didn't have no money, but I didn't have no debt. So I felt like I was the richest man on the earth. <laughs> and I came back to Portland trying to figure out, all right, what do I do with my life now? What is Portland? What does it mean to serve in this city? And um, uh, Chuck Matthews, the coach at Madison, called me. He's a good friend of mine. He called me and said, hey, man, the head coaching job at Benson, boys' job just opened up. Man, you'd be great for that. And, I, you know, I love youth. I've been, I've been a lifelong mentor for 35 years. So I was like, oh, that's the easy, low-hanging fruit. That's a quick way to connect. So I applied. It was about 25 people that applied. It came down to me and the current coach right now for the second interview. But he was a Benson grad and a legend, and so they went with him. And they looked at my 13-year coaching gap where I hadn't coached in like 13 years, and and they went with him. And I'll never forget, it was on a Friday that we both interviewed, and uh, the principal, Curtis Wilson, called me that night, and he goes, I got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? <laughs> I said, all right, give me the bad news first. And he said, well, we decided to go with Coach Earl, so you didn't get the boys' job. I was like, well, what in the world could be the good news? And he goes, you interviewed real well. We just feel like you'd be an amazing girls' basketball coach. And I was like, girls? I've never coached girls in my entire life. Actually, I coached at the park my daughter when she was, like, in the third, fourth grade. But outside of that, I wasn't involved in girls' basketball. Not wrong with girls' basketball, but I – my whole life work has been about mentoring black boys. Mm-hmm. So he, he he could tell I, I had uh, 
serious reservations about, you know, stepping in that space and coaching. He said, look, man, I got a bunch of other interviews for this job, but I'm going to hold them off, give you first right of refusal. Give me a week and let me know if you want to do that. I went and saw my pastor about three days later, and I told him what had happened. And he looked at me with a real pensive look in his face, and he just said, man, I don't see what you hung up about. He goes, the mission is still the same. The only difference is the gender. And I don't know why that connected with me, but I was like, man, he's right. And uh, so I I called uh, Mr. Uh, Wilson, and I just said, hey, man, I'm willing to do it for a year. You know, I'll help you get the program organized. And that was it. It was a one-year commitment mm-hmm. for me. And uh, it just, it, it changed my life. Like, I stepped into that, and it was as easy and as comfortable as putting my socks on in the morning. I just knew the first week of interacting with these girls that this is what I was called to do. And, um, you know, eight years later, here I am. Eight years later, Benson has become what it's become. Yeah. Yeah, well, I talk about that a little bit too, Coach. You know, you get to a program like Benson, uh, who had struggled, right, uh, and had not a lot of success. Um, you know, you take over that job. What was it that you did to, to kind of get things going off on the right foot? What were some things you did in that first year that you think helped lead to where your program is now? Uh, you know, at the middle school level, I had to get, you know, you know, this, this game is, is, is about skill and skill takes time. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. And for our girls, especially the girls that I coach, you know, they come from low economic, uh, communities. Um, and so they don't have the money to pay for trainers and play a lot of AAU basketball. So, but they were fast, they were quick, they were very athletic. Uh, they just needed an opportunity to develop. And so I started at the middle school because that would buy me the time to get them ready for high school. So I uh, started a, a program of an organization I started and founded called HALA. Uh, so I started HALA Hoops for our girls, and I grabbed a bunch of sixth and seventh grade girls. I remember going to calling PE teachers and PPS, and I said, hey, my name is Coach Knox. I'm the coach at Benson, but I run an organization called HALA, and I'm trying to get an AU team for black and brown girls. And I don't know if you have some really long, tall, sixth and seventh grade uh, black and Latino girls. I would love to come to your PE class and either teach the class or just hang out. And, man, every every one of those PE teachers was so welcoming. So I would I would go and teach their PE classes. Some I would just go hang out. They would introduce me to kids, and I would give the kids my number to give to their parent parents to uh, reach out to me. And so I had a lot of parents wanting to get their daughters signed up in our program. And at that time, there really wasn't much for black and brown girls in North and Northeast Portland. And um, you know that's where I so I got them in the gym and, and taught them how to be gym junkies. Uh, we spent an inordinate amount of time in the gym. And I know one thing, one, one of the most important ingredients I've learned when you work with kids, man, kids get as excited about things as you are. <laughs> and they could see my enthusiasm for the game. I know how basketball, I knew how basketball had changed my life growing, as a black kid growing up in South Central LA. 
and uh, I wanted to bring that experience to them. And so they they got as they geeked out on basketball the same way I geek out on basketball. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we grew, you know. So, so we started our we we got middle school, and that became that became a feeder system for Benson. Not all the girls ended up at Benson. I would say I get probably about thirty percent of kids from our program are come to Benson. About other seventy percent uh, go to other schools in in the, in the district. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? I, I don't think a lot of listeners are, are familiar with, you know, Benson High School and, and the fact that there's no real feeder schools. Uh, no. Right? So can you can you talk about how that works with, with you and how you don't get to have that traditional youth program? I'm, I'm, that's interesting that you know about that. I'm impressed. Many people don't know. i I got to do my research, Coach. I'm, I'm welcome. I don't. I don't got. Uh, I'm not scouting anybody, so I'm scouting my interview guest right now. <laughs> yes. Well, Marshall Haskins is the uh, the district athletic director over Portland Public Schools, and his vision is to get kids playing for their neighborhood high school teams, which is a great vision. You know, I'm, I mean, that's the only way for the for, for at least on the girls' side that we're going to be uh, competitive statewide. But the problem with Benson is it's not a neighborhood school. Um, it's a it's um, it's a tech school. Uh, kids can apply from any district in PPS, and because of that, we're not allowed to have a Benson feeder program. Like like Jeff has one, Grant has one, Lincoln has one, Wilson has one. All the other eight PIL schools have feeders. You know, grade and middle school sports programs that are supposed to feed into their high school program. We can't. So um, I, I just can't sit by, sit back passively and hope that these kids come to come to Benson. You know, my community relationship is everything. So I had to foster relationships at that level. And so the easiest low-hanging fruit for me was starting, you know, an AAU program to give other kids an opportunity that weren't playing in the neighborhood schools to play and not just play in our PIL middle school league, which is a, a good league. And man, mm-hmm. sports is really improved for girls, but to play AEU basketball, which is the highest level of, of, you know, sports in terms of, you know, competitiveness, at least for basketball. But I would say across the board, that's probably true. Right. And like you're saying, even within that, that program you have, you don't even get all of those kids, right? I mean, it's don't. still – because it's, it's, a, it's a lottery system, right, to get into Benson? Do, do I have yeah. that correct? Yeah. yeah. So even kids and, that want to come play don't necessarily get to. Yep. And it's a, la- it's, a, it's, a, it's a labor of love. And it's, you know, like you don't get every kid you want. I haven't got every kid I want. It is a lottery system. We only let a certain amount of kids get into the program, uh, get into the school. Um, and, you know, I had kids that I was very invested in that didn't get in and ended up at other high schools, but that's just, that's the way it works. And, uh, you know, to me, it's about paying it forward, sewing into a kid, giving them an opportunity to grow and develop their craft and take that wherever they end up, you know, so that they see they have, you know, the skill set to compete at a high school level and possibly play beyond high school. So I take just as much 
delight and joy seeing kids that have come out of my program, end up at other high school programs, and off to college. Yeah. Coach, you know, one of the things that's nice about a youth program is the ability for, you know, kids to play together for a long period of time, right? You can build kind of team chemistry. Mm-hmm. Without kind of having that, what are some things that you do to build chemistry amongst your team and, and your program? You know, I, the, the different, my, from my perspective, all right, from, you know, coaching boys and girls, this is exclusively mine, so I don't want to get nobody sending me bad emails about <laughs> But I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you my difference between coaching boys and girls, right? So, um, boys, man, boys play to feel good. Girls seem to have to feel good to play good. And so, the social emotional work you, you have to do with girls, uh, in terms of building that bond with them is crucial. So what we do, the activities we do off the court are just as important as the activities we do on the court. You know what I'm saying? And having that kind of cohesion and connectedness is crucial to the product we put out on the court when we play, you know. So, um, but, you know, some of our girls play with Hala you know, after high school, winter high school basketball, so they play year-round, so they get a chance to play more than just their high school winter season together. They get to play spring, summer, and that that helps add to our chemistry when we come back for the next winter season. So, but like I said, you know, um, I do like with these kids. They, they see more than basketball, and any state, that we end up playing basketball and we do a tour of that city and learn things about uh, communities that they come from, uh, except they're in, you know, the state that we happen to be there for to play in a tournament. So so we, we do a lot with these kids. We keep them moving. They don't have time to be uh, unbusy or they don't have much idle time or downtime. Right. Yeah, that's cool I, that you, you say that, you know, you go to a different state, you do a little research on where you're at and, and yeah. type of life. Maybe those kids are leaving. Or leaving. Uh, what are some other things that you do off the court you think that have really helped your program that, that might help others that are interested? For our girls, every one of them have a mentor. And uh, and that those mentors come through our nonprofit holla. And and they spend two to four hours a week with our kids doing academic support or just hanging out. After practice, I drop those kids off uh, to these mentors, you know, whether it's at their college or home or whatever, and they get a lot of that different support. Um, but we also, just as a, as a team, you know, like we're always doing stuff, period. Like, you know, we've, we've toured the, the justice system downtown. Um, we, you know, we've done movie nights, we've done, you know, midnight basketball, um, and we just, we, you know, we, I make sure that in our practice we do some, act, some, just some activities, you know, our practices are usually two and a half hours. Sometimes I just will have an hour and 15 minute practice and I'll spend the rest of the time playing a game like, black card revoked. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but we're always doing something together as a group. And um 
and also empowering our girls' voice so they get to speak up um, during practice. So we, I'm always taking space for them to communicate how they feel like they're doing and the group is doing in a drill, and it's shared from their perspective so that they feel empowered. Um, and then, you know, I always do an evaluation of myself. I, I, I let them do an anonymous evaluation halfway into the season uh, where they get to write down how they feel I'm coaching, if they feel like I'm too tough, too soft, too demanding, not demanding enough, organized, not organized. They can share their grievances about playing time or roles or whatever that stuff is. And it's, it's a hard thing for me to swallow. One of the most humbling experiences of the season. I absolutely dread them, but it's good for me because the kids, they're honest. What they write down is honest feedback that I need in order for me, you know, to connect with them and then, and for them to connect with each other. So those are some of the things that we do off the court, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with, you know, I, I like that idea of, of anonymously having them talk to you, but do you have those one-on-one -on -one conversations? I'm sure you do with athletes about playing time and, and things of that nature. And, and how do you go about addressing those issues that kids have? You know, Brene Brown said, especially when you're communicating with other people, uh, she said, uh, clear is kind or kind is clear. And I think the, what's always worked for me dealing with kids and their parents is to be very clear about where they're at in the program, what their role is. And it's not that they'll be, you know, a prisoner to that role because they can work themselves out of that role. depends on how much work they put in, right? So there is opportunities for that. But I think the most important thing you owe a kid and their parent, because I have to deal with both, um, is to be clear with them and not sugarcoat with them. I've told I said some things to the kid, and you could tell it was heartbreaking, but it was the truth, and they swallowed it. You know, it's not easy to digest honest feedback about yourself. I don't know. I don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm thankful, you know, because they, they at least let me know where I stood. And I want these kids to understand where they stand and what their role will be, what their minutes will look like. And if a parent sends a letter to the A.D., and it's persistent, and I have to meet with that parent, with the athletic director, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them the real. I'm going to tell them mm -hmm. where their kid is. I'd even invite them into practice so that they can kind of see what it, you know, because the kid, when the kid gets in the car with the parent, they're not going to tell the real truth. Mm -hmm. And so the parent working off that kid's, working off that kid's information, and that information oftentimes can be inaccurate. So, I meet with parents and the kids, and I make sure that I'm clear, that I'm accurate about my assessment of them. And they might not like it, but they'll respect it. Yeah. And that's that's key. Yeah. Coach, now that you guys, uh, you know, fun fact, uh, people that don't know, you are the last uh, girls 6A state champion from uh, 2019 because we haven't been able to crown one since then. And what are we working on the three? Times? You are. You know what? I I am I'm cutting you a little short there. My apologies, Coach. You're absolutely right. Multiple state champions. Multiple state champions. Uh, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Working um, on a third right now this season. That's working right. On... That's, that's right. 
Coach, how do you go about trying to maintain that success? You know, it's it's one thing to kind of build to get there, uh, but once you get there, it's, it's kind of harder to, to hold on and maintain that. So what do you do or how do you plan on trying to keep Benson as that, that continual state title contender? Man, people know me. I don't know if people know me as a great strategist or a developer of talent. I think most people in the state know me from my suits Um <laughs> Because I wear those wild and crazy suits, yeah. and uh, I don't think people understand that that's not about ego or drawing attention to myself. Actually, it's about a couple of things. One, uh, our kids are black and brown in a predominantly white state, and when those kids got to the state tournament, you know, in, in our community, uh, when anything black is successful, the black community rides hard for it, and I knew our kids felt a lot of pressure. When we got to the child center, so I wanted to ease that. And one of the easiest ways to ease it is to come in with a crazy suit and just help them understand that this is a game and it's something to be enjoyed and it's something uh, that's a privilege to do. And so I think for me, I want to, you know, I'm as competitive as the next coach. I want to be, you know, I want to play at the child center every year. But. I enjoy the ride. Um, I make sure that I have a lot of fun. Uh, I've been in a nonprofit space. When I was in my 20s, I ran an organization called Urban Progress. And I remember I was trying to change the world. I was going to make a difference. And I remember how overwhelmed I was with trying to make that difference because I was in a tough environment trying to do that. And uh, as I look back to my 20s, I just didn't enjoy what I was doing, even though it was everything I wanted. You know what I mean? It was what I felt called to. So when I when I uh when I got in, you know, later on in life, you know, I'm fifty four now. I started when I was like forty six with Vincent Girls. Uh it's hard. It's some heavy lifting. But you know what? I'm having the time of my life. I'm having a blast. So if you don't enjoy this and you let the pressure swallow you up, you know what I mean, you'll start questioning should you be coaching? Why are you coaching? And you won't have fun coaching. So, you know, me maintaining that kind of success, I make sure I do it with joy. You know what I mean? I make sure I have fun all the time. And, you know, if I'm busting my ass to try and make it as successful as I can and my efforts don't result in what they resulted in in 2019 when in the state championship, I'm okay because I left it all on the floor. And uh, that's that's helped me maintain my mental health, my my sanity, and um, my levity. You know what I mean? In terms of yeah. putting it all into perspective and understanding what it is, which is just a game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great, Coach. Especially for you know, as head coaches, you know, we're worried about so much, and the grind can take over sometimes. That that reminder. Uh, that it is fun, you know, and you enjoy doing it is always, always welcome and uh, oftentimes needed. That's good stuff. Man, I've been around a lot of coaches, man. They they have success, but they ain't having fun. And uh, I'm always make sure that I have both. And that that was something I had to learn. You know, it mm-hmm. it didn't happen overnight, but it's something I had to learn. And I look back now as an older gentleman with a lot of life lessons, 
that understands, man, what what where the where the true meaning of this is. And I think the most important thing, man, you know, like when I was a young dude, I was trying to carve out my identity, self worth, and value through W's, through winning games. And then once you realize that that don't matter, that your self worth can't be determined by how many by your win loss column, right? Once you get to that place where it's not determined by that, then you can start having some fun. You know what I'm saying? Because it's bigger I than do. your ego. <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff, Coach. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll return with more from Coach Knox right after this on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Are you an OBCA member yet? Sign up before January 29th and be entered for a chance to win one of two $25 gift certificates to Big Five Sporting Goods. Members that have signed up from the start of this school year will also be entered to win. You can sign up today at or.nhsbca.org. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Derek Duman here with Coach Eric Knox. Eric Knox, excuse me. Sorry, Coach. Uh, Coach, I want to dive in into um, something that, you know, has been at the forefront of our society a little bit lately um, uh, and with the Black Lives Matter movement, things of this past summer. Um, you know, you are a, a coach of color, grew up in L.A., uh, tough area. You work with black and brown girls. Uh, how has your experience as a, as a coach of color been um, and do you, do you feel like you've been treated fairly or any differently because of that? Well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I got too many stories as a coach and, you know, my kids, they have their own stories, you know what I mean, in terms of how we are treated by the crowd, how we've been treated by refs, how we've been viewed just in in terms of state rankings, you know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. sometimes – I think sometimes uh, white folks don't understand their built-in bias. You know what I mean, and that's that's very real. And and we've experienced. I as a coach, my players as players, have experienced the brunt of that. We never let that be an excuse, um, but it's always a clear and evident and present reality that we have to address. You know, every time we we play and navigate our winter season. Yeah, how do you address that stuff with with your kids? I mean, obviously they're seeing what's happening on on TV and and obviously I'm sure have some emotions and feelings towards it. Now, what are some things that you do to to open up that dialogue and, and have those conversations with your kids? Uh we you know, we we were one of the first programs at least girl basketball programs that took a knee, we still take a knee. And I always give the kids the option, you know, your playing time is not based on whether you take a knee or not. That's completely on the kids, but they choose it every year. And it's something that they decide. But we we have those conversations quite often. You know what I mean? Like we played, I won't name some of the high schools that we had some, you know, we, we've had some real tough moments. But I've used some of those tough moments to have deep conversations about, you know, race and social issues and, you know, what does it mean to be black in a predominantly white state? You know, 
USA Today says that Portland is the whitest mid-sized city in America. You know what I'm saying? So they have to yeah. deal with that. And so for me, it, you know, how they navigate their blackness, not just in basketball, but prepare them for life, is crucial because I see it bigger than them putting the ball through the hoop. So we, we have constant conversations, constant dialogue. I always make sure that um, I don't negative frame their reality. I asset frame it. Negative frame means I don't talk about, well, you're black and, you know, dwell on the atrocities. Or Those are true and we talk about them. But I help them see the beauty in their blackness and their brownness, the beauty in their culture, and how it's played on the court. You know, how it shows up and how their style is, is unique and different. Uh, and sometimes people don't appreciate it. Refs don't appreciate it. Um, people rank us don't appreciate that. Uh, but I, I, I let them know I value it. And if they play with a high value of who they are culturally, um, it's going to show up in their performance. And so I do a lot of work. You know, we watch documentaries. Sometimes I can, like we have Saturday morning practice from 8 to 3. Uh, I don't tell them they'll show up, and I'll have a projector. Sh- um, uh, I have a projector set up, and we'll watch a documentary. You know what I'm saying? Um, a King documentary, a Malcolm X documentary, um, or something like that. And then we'll have a rich dialogue, the whole practice around it. So you know, I'm a very conscious person. Uh, you know, I'm very aware racially of who I am. And I try and impart that to them so that they are. But they are in a positive way, right, not in a negative way, right? So so that's crucial to that. Yeah. It, this is a tough question. I mean, you don't have a good answer, and, and that's fine. Uh, do you have any advice for coaches who would like to open up that dialogue with their, their, their student-athletes? You know, maybe they're not, uh, you know, coaching at a Benson. Uh, maybe their school is predominantly white, but they want to address the conversation and, and kind of um, speak openly with their kids. Do you have any advice for, for coaches that might be interested in doing that and, and how they could approach that conversation? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the most important things that I do is I utilize media. Like if you, if you, you know, if you're not an educator in that way and you're not, uh, up to snuff on social and racial justice issues. There's plenty of material on 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 the web, YouTube videos that you can watch. Um, that you know, as a team, you guys could sit down and and watch something. You know, like I I've had my kids watch Race, The Power of Illusion, the three part series. Each part is about 35 minutes. We'll sit down, watch all three parts of it, and have a rich conversation around it. Um, and, you know, like I said, you don't have to be the most articulate. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, being a scholar around this issue. You can be clumsy. You know, I know a lot of my white friends, they're clumsy around these issues. Um, but, but you know, educating them through media um, can do the work that you you don't feel confident in doing. And the dialogue, kids aren't dumb. You know what I mean? Like the dialogue, like most of my stuff happens through dialogue, right, through dialogue. And we get to some truths after we watch, you know, a documentary um, through the group. And I didn't have to be the scholar. I didn't have to be the expert in it. 
And that's that's the most important piece because at the end of the day, what are we doing as coaches? We're empowering their voice. So letting them dialogue after watching the documentary is a way of empowering their voice. And that's one of the things that I do. And one of the things that I would encourage a white coach that has a predominantly white shirt, uh, white um, uh, uh, basketball program, that's one of the easy, low-hanging fruit ways of educating your kids on, on issues that they wouldn't normally think about because their program is pretty white and monolithic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good stuff, Coach. Uh, I want to kind of change gears a little bit on you here. Uh, you know, when I have talked to some other coaches about your teams, and I think I've seen you guys play maybe once or twice in the past, yeah. but uh, coaches say your kids play extremely hard um, and that, you know, defensively your pressure is really tough to deal with. Can you talk about, you know, schematically or even philosophically, you know, how do you get kids to play so hard? And then, you know, defensively, how are you able to, to be so good and pressure the ball and, and, and cause havoc on the defensive end? A um, couple things. Okay, so let me start with the beginning of my basketball coaching career at Benson. When I first inherited Benson, you know, skills, like on the offensive end, take a minute to develop, right? It's a lot of repetition, lots of hours. So I was like, there's no way I, we can compete, um, you know, on 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 the stage of, like, these really top teams, like the, the Southridges, the Jesuits, the South Medfords, um, and compete with them. Uh, because our kids hadn't put in the work in terms of skill because they didn't have much AAU experience and nobody was, you know, developing them at a young age when I first started. But the one thing I knew I could do was close the gap quicker on the defensive end because our kids were quick, fast, athletic, and uh, it, it, it didn't require so much skill as it required just defensive IQ. And my kids are smart, so I knew they they would catch the concepts. So I knew if we pressed up into people and made them uncomfortable, my whole thing is I'm not worried. Don't let them get around you. Make them shoot over the top of you because I I feel like if any of those kids try to shoot over the top of our kids, then our length would um, mm-hmm. prevail. So, you know, our whole – you know, I spend 60% of my practice always working on defensive principle, and I am a, a mad scientist around defense. You know, I come from Ralph Miller, but not only Ralph Miller, I you know, Jim McClune and – at St. Bernard's, where I played high school, we were 94 feet of hell, you know, in your face. So my kids know, you know what I mean? In our practice, we do a lot of drills around applying pressure, right? And I spend a lot of time instructing. Like, I I always tell uh, coaches, if your kids ain't rolling their eyes at you in practice, then you ain't, uh, <laughs> uh, you ain't coaching, right? Like, you got to pay attention to details in order for them to pay attention to details. So I will I will go I will go off about something stupid. <laughs> like like <laughs> like like just being an inch off on the press. And I will stop the whole mm. practice and lecture them for about five minutes on them being an inch off on the one three one, right? In terms of how they how they aligned for the press after a made shot. And they will roll their eyes and they're like, it's not that big of a deal, but because I'm going off they realize that it is a big deal. Like, like, like being precise and anal about it 
is important. So, you know, that that's what makes us tough. You know, like we're 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 pretty efficient on the defensive end. Uh they understand what it means to to you know, get up into their opponent. Uh we play a, a lot of pressure um and our kids have a lot of basketball IQ. And and and, and to me the most important thing is just the conditioning. I have kids in college right now that are literally that text me and say high school practices were much harder than my college practices. You know what I mean? Because you got to be in shape to play to defend the way we defend. Because you got to be able to get a stop and then push the ball and get a quick bucket. So we play at a real frenetic pace both ends of the floor, and that requires that everybody's got to be in shape, and so they are. Yeah. Do you guys press on a miss at all? No, you know what? I want to do that. I, you know, I, I, I have been doing a little bit of studying in this pandemic around pressing after misses, because um, I've had that happen to us. Um, yeah. And I've seen programs that are successful; they double up on the ball. Um, yeah, but you know, I need somebody to teach me. Can you teach me? <laughs> Uh, you know, you I that? learned, uh, we, we don't, we don't, we don't very often at all, no. Uh, but you know what, where, where I found a good spot to look, even for those that are looking to, to do that is, is those, um, the teams that are playing the system, you know, that are running and going all the time. Um, mm. they usually have some way to do it, you know. Um, I don't have a great answer for anybody by any means, but I know those teams like to do it a lot because, because they're trying to get you to turn it over. Um, it's a little different probably for them, though, because it seems like they don't really care if they give up a bucket. They're, they're just right. trying to score <laughs> as soon right. as they can. So maybe adapt it a little bit. But I, What we do is, is um, after a made shot, our point guard is always at the top of the press, and everybody's got to look at her fingers. She puts up a three. Uh, we're in one, three, one. She puts up two fingers. We're in two two one. If she puts a one. We're in a one two two. So and she she determines the press the whole time. I'm not calling out the press. Uh, the point guard determines that. So we mix it up almost every shot. You're gonna see a one three one. You're gonna see a one two two. You're gonna see the two two one. So it kind of throws our opponents off. Yeah. You know, How much time do you spend? Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Coach. I'm just curious, like, with, with that many different presses, you know, how much time do you spend on each? How do you decide? Do you do any game planning behind how much you want to see one over the other? Uh, you know what? Yes. Depending on the opponent, I'll tell my point guard, let's spend more time doing a 2-2-1. Two, two, or, you know, every time down the floor, like like three out of the five times, we get into our press. I'll tell, like, Mackenzie Porter, you know, I'll say, I want us in a 1-3-1. You know what I mean? And, and she's smart. If you got a smart point guard, I train my kids um, to, you know, to lock in the, our point guard immediately when the shot's made. If they don't, they know they risk coming out the game. Like, that stuff mm-hmm. is important, being detailed that way and being and paying attention. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, schematically, you know, depending on a team, if we start finding success in one of our presses, 
we'll, we might spend a whole quarter just on that press. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Um, but but for other teams that, that that are as sophisticated as us, that know how to break a pass, uh, a press, we you know now we go from checkers to chess, and it's a chess mm-hmm. match. You know what I'm saying? So we yeah. just try and keep thinking and hope by the time fourth quarter runs around, our conditioning kicks in and we wear them down, and and then they start making bad plays and start right. you know turning the ball over because they they're under pressure and duress. Yeah. And then your conditioning takes over, right? First quarter. Because yeah. our conditioning kicks in. Yeah. So you know, you talked a lot about skill development. I'm curious, uh you guys get to use the the practice limitation rule, five A, six A rule. Um how do you kind of use that? Is that what you use for skill development? Do you spend time in practice? Kind of what does your, your whole program skill development-wise look like? You know what? I mean, most like Monday through Friday, we spend most of our time. This is about 80%. Our kids know what it is. It's a routine, doing it over and over again, right? They, you know, I don't do much adjusting. I might do that, that final 20% might be, you know, preparing for our opponent, but they know 80% Monday through Friday is our routine, working on our defense, working on our press, uh, you know, scrimmaging. We don't do much skill work Monday through Friday. Saturday, we have a three-hour practice, and that is skill for three hours. Mm. Three hours. Um, and then actually game day, we do a lot. Of, we, we probably spend about an hour and fifteen minutes of just straight shooting uh, in our in our practice clothes uh, before the game, and then they go change and get in their uniform, and then we take the floor. But we'll spend an hour and fifteen minutes just working on shooting and cone drills and coming off, mm-hmm. you know, screen and roll stuff and. But then, but Saturday is my skill day. But most importantly, a lot of my skill happens spring, you know, when we're allowed to get with our players, spring and summer. We get after, you know, that, that group that won, won that state championship in 2019, what people didn't know was that in the fall and the spring, particularly, particularly in the fall and the spring, I started picking those kids up at 4 a.m. I had a route, four pickups, four, four ten, four. 20 and 4.30, and we were at the track by 4.45, and we were at the track from 4.45 to 5.45, and then we got to the gym by 6, and we were in the gym from 6 to 7.45, and then they went and got ready and were in class by, I would go to Taco Bell, get them a bunch of food, and bring it to them by about 8.05, 8.10, and they would start school, classes, and we would do that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for Three months in the fall and about um, uh, about a month in the spring, and then the summer we would, you know, we would use June. We'd practice Monday through Thursday um, for the whole month of June, and we called that getting ready for the So that's what it looked like for us. Very good. Thanks, Coach. 
Uh, we're going to take another break. When we return, Coach Knox will try to beat the shot clock here on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Stay up to date with the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association on social media at facebook.com slash OregonBCA or on Twitter at ORHoopCoaches. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. We're talking with Eric Knox, girls basketball coach at Benson High School. Uh, coach, for my next set of questions, I'm going to put you up against the shot clock. So I'm going to put 35 seconds on a timer. And I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. These should be one- to two-word answers. Uh, And we're going to see how many questions we can get through in 35 seconds. Oh, Lord. Sound sound good? Yeah. All right. (laughs) If there's anything, we can can talk about anything uh, in more depth after the the shot clock expires. One or two words? One or two words should be all you need. Okay. All right. 35 seconds on the clock starting now. Do you think Oregon High School basketball should have a shot clock? Yes. Should it be implemented at the sub-varsity levels? Absolutely. If you're up three points with less than 10 seconds, do you foul? Say the question again. If you're up three points with less than 10 seconds, do you foul? No. How big of a lead do you need before you pull off a press? 20. Do you think the three-point line should be moved back? No. Are you the state's best dress coach? Absolutely. No question. What's one word What's one word officials would use to describe you? Passionate. Time. Fiery. Good work, coach. <laughs> fiery. Passionate, fiery, good. I like it. I like it. Somebody said, what was the one I had? I think it was last week said uh polite and I, I told him that he not many not many coaches could say that officials would describe them as polite. So I was impressed. I was impressed with that answer. No, I don't think they would say I'm polite. I don't think <laughs> the coaches state would say I'm polite. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. That's all right. Uh you know, coach I, I call it the shot clock segment. Uh the shot clock is is something that's obviously very uh, at the forefront of conversations, not only in the state of Oregon, high school basketball, but across the country. Uh, you mentioned you're in favor of the shot clock. Can you elaborate on why? You know what? I think we would send more kids to college if we had a shot clock because we we get away from all this cat, cat and mouse stuff that coaches get to do and air the ball out. You know, uh, it was frustrating for me because we played teams and they would go four-corner and it would be three shots in the first quarter. And that didn't develop any kid's skill. I think if we want to develop as a state players, uh, shot clock's going to be important because you only got 30 seconds or 45 seconds. I don't know how long the shot clock would be, but you only have a certain amount of seconds to get into a shot. And so when the clock winds down, that's where skill kicks in. you got to go make something happen. And I think as long as we don't have a shot clock, you know, coaches can air the ball out and it doesn't help the kid's development as a basketball player. And I think we are very I, – I think we have very good talent here in the state of Oregon, but I think not having a shot clock hinders our development and growth, you know what I mean, in terms of developing talent here in the state. Yeah, you said you guys have played in, in different states. 
Um, you know, you talked about doing research on those those things. In those states that you've played in, have you played with a shot clock? Have you noticed much of a difference? Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Like, our kids have to make a difference. Now, we're known to play fast. And, and our kids, every time, like, we, we played teams in Washington, and we went to Washington, D.C., and we played in the Title IX tournament, and it was, like, the best teams in the country. It was a shot clock, a 30-second clock. And you you had to be uh, efficient, and you had, you know, to be aggressive offensively to get a shot off before that shot clock went off. So, you know, it was huge. I mean, in fact, I always came back from those tournaments with notes, pages of notes of ways to develop my kids because I started treating my kids like there was a shot clock. Because I wanted them to get to college. I wanted them to develop their skills. I wanted them to learn how to be more efficient and get more shots off in less time. And so playing with a shot clock in those moments helped me evaluate where we were and where we needed to be. How do you go about selecting team captains or even leaders on your team? Uh, You know – the final say comes with the coaches, but I let the kids select who they want the team captains to be. And, and you know, at the end of the day, our coaching staff will break the tie. We feel like that's just not a good – that person should not have – has no business being a team captain. So, you know, I'll – you know, I'll have a hat and some paper, and I'll say, all right, well, everybody, I want you to write down two or three names of people you think – should be the team captain. And usually the captains are the older ones in the program. Like, I'm not going to let a freshman be. No no matter how good that kid is, they're not going to be the team captain of my varsity team. I usually let the older kids do that. Because, again, it's about giving voice and getting kids prepared for life. And uh, hopefully you got a good program. You know, your juniors and seniors, even if they aren't the best players, right, they, they should be at least the best leaders. Right. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So I think best leaders as captains. Do you give your captains any specific responsibilities or duties after they've been selected? Uh, you, well, a couple of things. When we do game film, me and usually the captains do the film prep. So I always make sure the kids are they they participate in the film sessions. Like one of the things that was breakthrough for me, it happened actually in 2019, um, was when I started letting the kids take over the timeout. So even when I blew a timeout, if we were struggling, I always if it was a 60 second timeout, I always gave the kids the first 30 seconds of the timeout. I would just I would hover on the perimeter. And let them, um, you know, try and figure out why I called the timeout. I let them self-correct. And if they weren't, then I jumped in. If they did, nothing needed to be said. You know, we, we, we self-corrected and we went back out on the floor. So, and usually, those, you know, my kids that are the captain, um, you know, they're, 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 they're typically the leaders on the floor. They might not be the best player on the floor, but they're the leaders on the floor. So, you know, I make sure that I treat them as a coach. So we do game film together. I let the kids do the game film. 
whatever they're missing, I'll chime in or one of my coaches chime in, but we really try to empower them to take ownership of the program. Yeah, so what does a, a film session look like then? I'm just kind of curious. So the your captains are leading the film session. Uh, would it be like a typical coach leading a film session? It's just with your two captains there, or do you kind of take turns on who runs it? What, is, what does that look like? Uh, so they'll look at the off. So they, they look at the offensive end. What are the sets they run on the on, on the half court? Uh, mm-hmm. They look at the defensive end. What are they doing on the defensive end? Uh, they look for presses, and then they and usually it's two of them. Then they have to break down personnel. You know, what I mean? and 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 usually one of my coaches, including me, will have done the exact same work. So if they're missing stuff, we'll we'll make sure we chime in. But our kids, like the older they get, the uh, the better they get at, at breaking down film. And it's so good because, you know, they're prepared for it mentally when they step on the floor because they know what the other team's doing. They know set the other team's doing, um, and 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 they're able to read it before it happens or as it's developing. So. You know, we'll spend, you know, 45 minutes doing film. And I, I've had some, like Mackenzie Porter was incredible. Bria Dixon, incredible. Great leaders. Understood film. Could break down offenses and could explain it to their peers. Actually, sometimes better than I can. You know, one of the, I think one of the most important things, you know, I played basketball at Oregon State. Um, but sometimes I think ex-basketball players assume that just because they play basketball at a high level, they can coach at a high level. And I always say there's a difference between playing the game and explaining the game. And, uh, you know, a good coach is somebody that knows how to explain the game, not not the fact that they just played the game. So my kids in those film sessions, man, they use, you know, incredible analogies and make salient points. In a, in, in, a, in a teenager kind of way that connects mm-hmm. with their peers in a way that, that I don't connect as easily with them on. Yeah. It just requires cool. a whole lot more work. It, you know, here's the deal. It requires a whole lot more work. But if you're trying to prepare kids to be ambassadors in the world, that work is worth it. And that's the work I put in. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's awesome. That's a really cool idea um, that I think is can be very beneficial for everybody, including those that are leading it, right? I mean, you're you're building those leadership skills, the team chemistry you talked about earlier. You know, it, it works so many of those things. And then you also have a coach doing it too, so they're ready. Um, you know, there's, they can't screw it up, in other words, right? They feel confident yeah. and safe in what they're doing because they know they're not going to screw it up because you as the coach have their back. All day long, man. And I tell you, one of the yeah. most important I tell my kids when I push them and then they get intimidated and then I have to stop them and say, "What? don't ever give me this much power. You know, right. don't ever get much power in your life, right, where, where you can't play well because you're worried about what I think. I said, don't give me that much power. I don't want that much power. So in order for – in order for them not to give me that much power in their life, I have to do some of that work. I can't put it all on the kids. So one of the things I do is do things that empower them every day in practice to take, to state claim on their own voice. 
and bring that voice to the group. Yeah. Do you have a favorite drill that you guys do? We do the Olympics. I love Olympics. Woo! You know, it's a hard one to explain, but you got to have ten players, and every you got to make sixty. You go. It's it's baseline to baseline, one layup, both ends of the floor, two jumpers, both ends of the floor. Uh, everybody almost gets a turn at rebounding. It looks like a, it looks like either a three man rush or a three man weave. Uh, where you got, you know, somebody in the middle and others still in the lane. Uh, but only one shoots a layup and the other shoots jumpers. And then other people are at the baseline feeding the people that are shooting the ball so that they can take a shot and then they go fill lanes. And then the, then the rebounder or the person that makes the layup is now pushing the ball down the other end of the floor. It's really hard to explain. It's hard to visualize. But mm-hmm. I usually have a, a, a three-minute clock. They got to make okay. 60 in three minutes, and they're yeah. gassed. They usually can't make it until probably about halfway into the season. But we did, they have to do five sets of three minutes. So, mm. and they got it. Might take them six times, eight times, ten times. It might take us 40 minutes to do it. Um, mm. but it, it teaches them about pushing the ball, playing fast. It's it's an easy shooting drill. Um. It's a great passing drill. Um, it's it's about taking you know limited dribbles. I mean, it it, ha- it incorporates a whole lot in one drill. Right. Uh, but I do a lot of that, and I use it actually for conditioning. They're gassed trying to make sixty in three minutes. Yeah, I like that. Our, we do a similar drill, uh, and oh. it's two minutes, and our goal is forty. So. Same type of idea there, right? Twenty per minute is your goal. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. we take the shot clock out. I don't know if you do this, but we take the shot clock out. And one of the things that I do is, is I when they, when they don't hit sixty, the clock explains why they didn't hit sixty. So my assistant coach will use parts of the clock to keep score on if you bobbled the ball, if you dropped mm. the ball, if the layup. So we put all that on the other side of the score clock. So. So if they got 49 out of 60, we'll stop. Uh, after three minutes, we'll stop and say, all right, look, we had six bobble balls, four missed layups. You know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that tells and, – and we had, you know, we had 22 missed jump shots. Right. So I'm saying the, more, the less that goes down – the higher probability you're going to get 60. So it makes them pay attention to the other factors, not turning the ball over, being efficient in their shots, stuff like that, you know, not turning it over. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Versus, I'll probably add make, that to ours, too. You didn't make 40, you know, it's kind of like you didn't make 60, you go again. I like to explain why you didn't make it and the things you need to pay attention to in order to make it. Right. Do you have them run or push-ups or anything if they don't make it also, or is it just the teaching point and then try again? I never punish them with, with, with running. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. I have, but for the most part, I don't. Running is part of our conditioning. Right. They want to be done with the Olympic drill. The The, the drill is not fresh. After – 
after you do it two times. So they want to be right. done with it because it beats the brakes off of you. So, right. you know, if you don't pay attention, if you're not focused, if you're not lined up right in the lines and you don't get that number, that punishes you. Because mm-hmm. what was supposed to take five times, now you're on 11, 12, you know what I mean? And them kids right. are upset. Yeah. Well, good stuff, Coach. Uh, I think that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. Uh, if you have any follow-up questions or want to get a hold of Coach Knox, you can find his contact information in the episode description. We hope you'll join us next time here on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Until then, coach them up. Thank you for listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Is there a coach you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like to hear us discuss? You can write us a message on the Anchor website or send us an email at OregonBasketballCoaches at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify.